0: We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations.
1: You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Yeah, well, thanks, Josh,
2: Lindsay, Brad. (laughs) 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 Are you confusing him with
0: Brad Pitt? Oh, I
2: don't even know. I don't even know why I called. I started with a ah, brat.
0: Uh, Jeff, that was the highest pitch laugh I've
1: ever heard you do. <laughs> it's, it's my embarrassed laugh. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC Podcast, where every week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me on the podcast today, as always, are my very happy co-host, Lindsay Nicolay.
0: Who has two thumbs, as Brent said, and is excited about this podcast. I mean, two thumbs, two thumbs up is what I meant to say. I killed the joke. <laughs> Who has two thumbs up and is ready for this podcast. <laughs>
3: not the, it's not the first time, Lindsay.
0: Yeah. What joke. listeners don't know is that I have braces on my thumbs because I just had to get these injections. So my thumbs are in a permanent thumbs-up position.
1: They are.
3: Well, yeah. I'll. Well, so hey, this is Brent. I'll say hello. The reason that she's a, they, she has two thumbs in casts is because she's kind of like. Have you ever seen the the GIF of the cat that's typing on the keyboard? That's actually how uh, Lindsay types away uh, in her editorial yeah. duties for the Euros.
0: Thunder fingers. That's not why, everybody. Anyway, hey, Josh.
1: Yeah, folks, that's what I meant by the fact that it is going to be a... It's going to be a fun episode because these people are in rare form. There's a lot to talk about. Uh, Later in the show, we're going to talk to our colleague, Jeff Pickering, from our DC office, who is going to give us a rundown on... All things Capitol Hill that have taken place so far since the Biden administration has uh, come into office and the new Congress has kicked off in January. There is plenty to talk about there. But, Lindsay, so that we can get into it, tell us what the ERLC has been talking about this week.
0: Well, I have to start off this section by reminding listeners that, Josh, you're still holding down the fort while I finish up my maternity leave, which yeah, never seems long over? enough. I
1: mean, I'm, and what I meant by that was I hope it's going it's great.
0: Yeah. it's My vacation is almost over, sadly. It never seems long enough. So um, I don't even know if I'll be able to put together two sentences by the time we're doing the podcast and I'm really back to work. But first off, we have a piece, uh, an important piece that will explain to you about Biden's troubling nomination for the Department of Health and Human Services. For this important role, Biden has nominated Javier Becerra. And this nomination has drawn significant opposition from pro-life Americans and Religious Liberty Advocates. So this explainer will describe who Becerra is, what his history is regarding life and religious liberty views, and he has a long and sordid history if pro-life and religious liberty are important things to you. And it explains what happened at the Senate hearings this week and how the ERLC has been involved, which is really important. We want to highlight that. And then finally, what's next? So if you're wondering what's up with this, if you've been seeing this go through your different social media feeds, we have this explainer right here on ERLC.com for you.
3: Well, it's especially uh, troubling
1: if you're a nun. Exactly. (laughs)
0: It's true. So explain to, explain to listeners what that means, little sisters of the poor.
1: Sure. I mean, it's definitely distressing. So one of the things that I think we would want to make clear for our listeners is that we understand that uh, there are going to be people who disagree with us who have jobs in government. That's a way that things work. The reason that Becerra's nomination is so troubling, it's not just that he's somebody who disagrees with us on key issues, but that he has shown animus toward people of faith on critical issues, including, uh, after uh the little sisters of the poor were successful in opposing the hhs uh, contraceptive mandate in other words uh when this order of catholic nuns whose duty like their commission is to care for the elderly poor they were pushing back against the requirement that they offer birth control as a part of their health care plan and it was totally unnecessary there was no reason it should happen the supreme court said uh that The Little Sisters were uh, certainly within their rights to to ask for this, and they shouldn't be forced to do this. And even after securing legal victories, Javier Becerra uh, was involved in continuing to try to use legal means to punish and to force uh, this order of Catholic nuns to continue to provide birth control that they don't need. It was just outrageous, and that's just one of many examples uh, that he has, when he was the attorney general of the state of California, the, the kinds of, of animus that he has shown toward people of faith. And it's uh, this is a nomination that we are firmly opposed to, and we really hope that he is not confirmed. Just looking at his profile, his nomination itself is a bit of a head-scratcher, right?
3: There, there is no healthcare background. Um, which, you know, leading the Department of Health and Human Services would be helpful. And in this season where COVID vaccinations are at the forefront uh, of a lot of people's minds, just having some expertise in maybe logistics uh, and helping to coordinate that effort, uh, that would be helpful. And that's also not in his... In his background, so just on the face of it, there are some legitimate questions to be raised about, um, you know, whether he is the right person uh, to fill this role. Um, but then you add on top of that uh, these sorts of actions that that Josh talked about, which you know, if, if you're a a uh, individual who prioritizes pro-life policies, uh, or if you're a religious liberty advocate, uh, you're you're definitely concerned about what uh, Mr. Becerra may do if he becomes uh, the head of the Health and Human Services Department. So to put this in a little bit of a wider context, uh, we should also mention uh, this past week, President Biden withdrew his nominee to lead the OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, which was Mrs. Neera Tandon. Many analysts think that with her uh, nomination withdrawn, that may actually create some momentum for the opposition for Mr. Becerra's nomination. It, it's it's really unclear. There's still a lot of uh, hurdles that need to be overcome, still many more meetings to go. But needless to say, this is certainly one that is troubling, and uh, we'll stay on top of it uh, here at the ERLC.
0: So as the guys have said, be sure to stay tuned to ERLC.com our various social media channels for updates on this because we're following along and we're actively involved. Another controversy that's been going on in our culture recently that we've addressed is an article by Jason Thacker and our very own Josh Wester as well about Amazon and should Amazon be able to ban books. And this is the result of Amazon removing a book from one of our friends, Ryan T. Anderson, who is a conservative scholar and president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. And his book is titled, When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment. And he was alerted online that it this book was no longer available for purchase on Amazon's website. And um, it had been out for a couple of years, and then there was no explanation given. So Jason and Josh take a look at um, what's going on in the midst of this situation, and if this is a right or wrong decision. Should we agree with it? How should we think about it? So Josh, you want to tell us a little bit more about it?
1: Sure. And I'll try to be brief so that I don't get Lindsay's um, stop talking uh, hand signs right now through, yes, via Facebook. <laughs> so here's the deal. like Amazon is a massive powerhouse, right? They represent basically around 80%, I think, of total books sold, uh, and 50% of physical books that are sold in the United States are sold through Amazon or something something unbelievable like that. The The truth is that Ryan's book is provocatively titled, but it's an excellent, excellent treatment of issues surrounding uh, transgenderism, and it has been commended or endorsed or praised by people in all kinds of, at the highest levels of all kinds of professions, including the medical field, including um, philosophers, including, uh, biblical scholars. Like it is a really important book that Amazon has decided that you don't need access to. And since, uh, that move was made, uh, Amazon also last month, it was reported that they took down a documentary, uh, covering Justice Clarence Thomas. And there was no reason as of yet given for that. And it's just, it sets us down a very dangerous uh, trajectory because even though, you know, as we talk about free free speech and freedom of expression, these are First Amendment uh, protections. They apply not to these private businesses who can make their own decisions. This is – they exist to keep the government from stifling your speech or stifling your freedom to express yourself. It is still – deeply troubling to see a company with the kind of size and influence that Amazon has decide uh, that they're going to come in and play referee in the public square so that they can try to police or control which ideas people have access to. And the argument that Jason and I make is that uh, no one needs to be protected from ideas.
0: Well, and as many have said, if you want to control the, the current of the culture, you go to the forms of media. So your books, your popular media, like, um, music and movies and TV shows. And, uh, so this, this really will have an effect. We don't need to respond in fear, but we need to be wise to it. Well, I just,
3: I just don't understand like why, why was this necessary? Uh, you know, at at the end of the day, offense cannot be what guides decisions over whether to sell things or public, like that's just not the case. I mean, if, if I as a Christian go start searching on the internet, I'm going to find all sorts of offensive things said about Jesus Christ. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm from the the school of thought that says, hey, if you want to label something as bad speech, it is best taken down with more speech. And so, and I'm not trying to say at all that Ryan's book is that. I think I think we would actually commend that book uh, to folks in our audience. Uh, because it's a really thoughtful look at just this shifting definition in culture uh, for gender and sexuality. And uh, it's just like this was an unnecessary move. And I will say, since it was done in the context of the Equality Act being voted on in the U.S. House of Representatives, it's it, it seemed to have the effect of being a politically motivated move. And I don't know if that's what Amazon was trying to accomplish. Uh, I mean, look, maybe they decided this months ago, and it just happened to be at this time. But it's it's just like, you, you don't need to do this. This was a total unforced error on their part. And I, we all need and deserve a fuller explanation of what their standards are exactly.
0: Well, and summing it up, I'll... Just use a sentence from the article that says, in this age of tolerance and inclusion, it is abundantly clear that only certain acceptable ideas will be tolerated, which is actually no form of tolerance at all. And this makes me want to point listeners back to our interview with Carl Truman uh, and his book about the sexual revolution, because I think ultimately that's what this comes down to. Next, we have a short piece by Joe Carter who has been highlighting various ethical systems. And this week it wraps up. He's he's highlighted three different ones. This week it wraps up and he highlights virtue ethics. And he gives a very brief explainer about it. And, and so it's very uh, – doable to read. Uh, Only take a few minutes of your time, and it will help you think more clearly about ethics and how um, the way that many in our society think about ethics compares to the way that Christians might think about ethics from a biblical point of view. And then finally, I won't list them all, but we have a series of articles on our site. If you just go to our homepage, erlc.com, that highlight how we come alongside and partner with the various SBC entities. So we talk about the ERLC's work with the Global Hunger Relief. We talk about um, our work alongside LifeWay, uh, alongside our um, aid organizations, Uh, how we partner with churches to prevent sexual abuse, how we partner with our different SBC seminaries, and in fact, how we have a uh, ERLC Academy coming up in May that you'll want to find out more about. So we'll direct you again to the homepage and you'll see these various articles about our important partnerships with the various SBC entities that we are extremely thankful for.
3: Well, look after uh, after biblical inerrancy, right? I would say that cooperation is the name of the game in Baptist life, and you know these articles just do a great job of showing how we are able to partner with entities of all sorts, whether it's our our sister entities or with our great and local churches to uh, push forward with the gospel and show people uh, our kingdom
0: heart. It's a good way to sum it up, Brent. And that is a look at what we've got going on. We have a lot more pieces that we would encourage you to check out on ERLC.com. It's our pleasure to get to serve you in various ways and to help you think biblically about all of these pressing issues that come our way and to be a voice of clarity in the midst of confusion. So Josh and Brent, that is your rundown of what's happening on ERLC.com.
1: Hey, thanks, Lindsay. And, you know, I didn't get to flex my Baptist credentials in that section because you and Brent did such a good job of talking about it. But look, I was having a conversation with someone yesterday where they asked me, you know, is it hard to be part of the SBC because it seems like so much of like what people see like in terms of like PR or, or public opinion or whatever is the negative stuff, the bad stuff that comes along with it. And I'll just say, look, I think that's true that a lot of times the things that make headlines, the things that people see uh, out there floating around on social media or whatever, a lot of times that is the negative stuff. But if you just take a look at just the articles on our website this week, it highlights so much of the vital and amazing work that Southern Baptists are engaged in across this country and around the world. And that is something that I'm really proud to be a part of. Brent, tell us what's
3: going on in the world of culture. All right, thanks for that, Josh and Lindsay. Well, we are nearing the one-year mark of covid officially being declared a national emergency. That that one-year anniversary actually occurs next week. So little teaser, we will certainly be focusing a lot on that uh, next week at the RLC. But this week, coronavirus is definitely at the center of a number of national headlines, much of it focused on vaccines. So leading off this week is a story on that from Axios. Under the threat of new variants, vaccinating as many people as fast as possible is key to controlling the outbreak in the U.S. Public health experts are generally united in saying that Americans should get whichever vaccine they are offered first. All three vaccines authorized for use in the U.S. from Moderna, Pfizer, and Johnson & Johnson registered a very high efficacy in preventing hospitalization and death from COVID-19. Quote, the efficacy against severe disease is greater than 85 percent, and there have been no hospitalization or deaths in multiple countries, even in countries that have had the variants, NAIAD Director Anthony Fauci said of the Johnson & Johnson shot this weekend on ABC News This Week program. So uh, this, this has been a big week because of that Johnson & Johnson vaccine getting the emergency authorization. And just as a reminder, as we talked about last week, Uh, It can be transported, it's only one shot, uh, and it can be refrigerated at just normal refrigerators that are found at your local pharmacy. So that's why that one is seen as as such a game changer. Now that said, with the new Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine out there, NPR reports on views from multiple faith leaders about this particular vaccine. So from the report, it may offer the best prospect, for protecting as many Americans as possible, as quickly as possible, but some U.S. faith leaders say they have moral concerns about its development. Unlike the others, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was produced in part through the use of cell lines derived from an aborted human fetus back in 1985. In a statement released this week, leaders of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops said that this feature of the vaccine raises questions about its permissibility. The bishops in their statement stop well short of telling U.S. Catholics to avoid the Johnson & Johnson vaccine altogether, a position also taken by other faith leaders known for their strong opposition to abortion. Quote, We should oppose authorizing or funding research rooted in the taking of innocent human life, says our own ERLC president, Russell Moore. He goes on to say, that does not mean, though, that people must shun medical treatments that can save lives because they were discovered through means of which we would not necessarily approve. In practice, Americans who are able to get a COVID-19 vaccine generally have no choice about which one they will receive. So let me just open it up to to y'all, my dear colleagues. What are your thoughts as you kind of parse through some of the ethical complexities of this?
1: Yeah, Brent. Look, I I absolutely wish that we were talking about a situation where there were no ethical questions, Uh, but the truth is that there are. And as Christians, we are equipped to deal with them because we have a conscience and we have the scriptures and we have the Holy Spirit uh, to help us. And we have the uh, informed advice that comes to us, not just from uh, one, but from so many different Christian ethicists and theologians who have spent time studying both these kinds of ethical issues and also the scriptures to help guide us through this. I think that the advice and and the wisdom that Dr. Moore has offered us even this week as the uh, Johnson & Johnson vaccine came onto the market or was approved for emergency use has been incredibly helpful, which is to say, yeah, I, I'm with uh, the Catholic bishops that I think that if you have the choice, if you want to go with Moderna or Pfizer, that's that's great and commendable, uh, but I don't think that even even the questions about the Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccine should prohibit Christians from taking them. Uh, it would be way too complex to walk through here on the podcast, but if you want to see uh, some of the ethical uh, implications or what what exactly it is that we're talking about, you can read on Russellmore.com his uh, piece on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is good, and we're going to have a slate of pieces coming out next week that deal with this, and some of it looks specific. Specifically, at the ethics, but the bottom line for me is that uh, I think we can thank God, even if it was achieved imperfectly. I think we can thank God for these vaccines, and that we can encourage Christians to take them, never, never to violate your conscience. But we would encourage Christians uh, to avail themselves of these vaccines because they really are miracles of modern medicine. One of
0: our colleagues pointed out um, some interesting tidbits about this Johnson Johnson vaccine that he learned from. Um, one of Dr. Moore's former colleagues and actually president, Dr. Moeller at uh, Southern Seminary, just about the cell lines of this Johnson Johnson vaccine, and and uh, but again, as Josh said, I'm thankful for this modern uh, modern miracle of medicine that we could have a vaccine, three different vaccines within a year, is truly incredible.
2: Yeah, you
3: are uh, just 100% spot on, Lindsay, there. We always want to encourage people to ask questions. And the great news is is that there are answers uh, that are out there, particularly as it relates to these vaccines. Dr. Moore covered uh, a a bunch of this ground uh, back last uh, December. Uh, with our um, online interview that he did with Dr. Francis Collins, uh, who heads up the National Institutes of Health, uh, about these very issues related to the vaccines. And I would also point out another thing that, um, you know, you referenced Dr. Mueller's uh, podcast, as he kind of parses through in there. None of the vaccines that we have now, uh, that we now have access to, as, as Josh kind of alluded to, none of them are ethically perfect, uh, I would say. And so I, I want to make sure that we don't hold out this kind of, um, you know, standard like the where we let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, as Dr. Mueller points out in his podcast, like this is kind of where we are with modern science. And as Dr. Moore has said in a number of statements this week in his own writings, like we should continue to continually push and advocate for ethical standards as it relates to vaccine production, uh, whether it's COVID or anything else that's out there. But the overall arching moral responsibility I think we have in this moment is to try and stop the spread of this this deadly virus across the globe. And vaccines are a part of helping us to achieve that. All right. So while, a much, uh, while much attention was focused on vaccines this week, eyebrows were raised when Texas lifted all mandates this week. The Dallas Morning News is reporting that Republican Governor Greg Abbott made the sweeping move on Texas Independence Day, naturally, even though public health officials say restrictions are still critical to control the pandemic, which has killed more than 42,500 Texans. Governor Abbott cited growing vaccination rates for his decision though fewer than 2 million Texans are fully inoculated against uh, COVID-19 in a state of 29 million. The announcement puts Texas at odds with federal experts who have said that even as vaccinations rise, people still need to wear masks, avoid crowds, and socially distance. Texas was also joined in this announcement uh, separately by the state of Mississippi, which lifted mandates there. Politico said, quote, starting tomorrow, we are lifting all of our county mask mandates and businesses will be able to operate at full capacity without any state-imposed rules, Governor Tate Reeves of Mississippi wrote on Twitter. So this was certainly uh, an interesting week. And look, there's a part of me that absolutely wants to affirm uh, what these governors did because we're all tired of living in this moment. Uh, But then the other part of me, uh, probably my head, tells me it seems like we're getting close to the end. And so if we can just buckle down and and hold on for a little bit longer, man, we'll be able to get to a place where everybody uh can remove their masks and safely uh gather once again in close quarters even. And so I'm just I'm I'm hopeful uh that all of us will will be able to be in a place uh like Texas and and Mississippi want to be.
1: Yeah, Brenton, I think we're almost there. I mean, I think that, you know, it is unbelievable to me that this past weekend we set new records, vaccinating 2.5 million people. And there's so much uh, positive momentum in overcoming coronavirus and moving back toward uh, normalcy. These are Incredibly complicated decisions being made by public officials and those in charge of public health. And look, I hope that what happens is that these states that are dropping their mandates, I hope their case counts continue to go down and that that other states were, are able to follow suit. But we, we'll see what happens, and you know, we should have I have a profound confidence that we are at least we are not far from seeing this awful plague come to an end
3: let's close out this COVID section with a little bit more of an uplifting story that we can all agree on. And it's about the queen of Tennessee, Dolly Parton, the Washington post. uh, This was a great article that they had this week that some of us were talking about as Dolly Parton tells it, her first ever car accident in October, 2013 was minor, but it left her bruised and sore enough to seek medical advice at Vanderbilt university medical center here in Nashville. Uh, She met a doctor there uh, who kind of counseled her through it, helped her in a little bit. And it goes on to say their bond of nearly seven years received worldwide attention Tuesday after it was revealed that Parton's $1 million donation to Vanderbilt for coronavirus research made in honor of this doctor partially funded the biotechnology firm Moderna's experimental vaccine, which a preliminary analysis released this week found is nearly 95% effective at preventing the coronavirus illness. So how great is this? The the Queen of Tennessee just out there just spreading joy across the across the globe really as she's done with her music.
0: What I loved about this too is that the doctor's son didn't believe him about his friendship with Dolly. <laughs> and then um you know she was filmed getting her vaccine and she she did a rendition of Jolene. Did you see that? She's like vaccine, 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 vaccine. It was really funny.
1: Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does not that sound just thanks like Dolly? For, no, I, I mean, I saw Dolly do it, but thanks for bringing that to the podcast. How about it? <laughs> You've left Brent in silence. He was stunned. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I mean, can that can that be both in the opening and remain as a part of the show? I mean, cuz that that was just that, <laughs> was, that, that was golden. I think it's time. There you go. You can see we're just treading new new ground, right
0: there. Yeah. I'll be taking offers for my recording contract from anyone who's listening.
3: So, anyways, well, i'm I'm thankful that uh, Queen Dolly Parton got her vaccine, uh, hopefully ensuring that she is around for many, many years to come uh, because she has certainly been a picture of grace and goodness uh, throughout this this Covid uh, season. All right. Moving on on the international front, a major event will occur this weekend as the Pope plans to visit Iraq. NBC News reports when two frail elderly men meet in Iraq on Saturday, they will carry with them the hope of millions for better relations between Christianity and Islam. The meeting of Pope Francis and Ali al-Sistani, the spiritual leader of millions of Shiite Muslims, is believed to be the first between a pope and an Iraqi Grand Ayatollah. The papal visit is risky. Francis will be traveling amid a second wave of coronavirus there and soon after 10 rockets rained down on an airbase northwest of Baghdad on Wednesday. Iraq's ancient Christian community was targeted uh, long before ISIS even came to occupy vast swaths of the country in 2014, going back to the aftermath of the 2003 U.S.-led invasion that overthrew Saddam Hussein. Under ISIS, though, Christians were again forced to flee their homes, accelerating the decline of an already dwindling population. In fact, in 2019, there was a report that the U.S. Department of State cited Christian leaders' estimates that there were fewer than 250,000 Christians remaining in Iraq, compared to somewhere between 800,000 and 1.4 million back in 2002. Another reason this is important, Iraqis are proud to live in the birthplace of Abraham the prophet of central importance to Muslim Christians and Jews. Some hope that the Pontus visit will remind the world of this rich history. So, look, this is certainly an opportunity to uh, bridge some divides, some theological, some geographical, um, some cultural. Uh, But I just just thought that this was a a really interesting story for us to highlight.
1: I mean, Brent, you did a good job bringing... A lot of that history out there. I mean, think about the fact that for Christians, a lot of times we we want to go and spend time uh, in Israel. And I have never been to Israel, and definitely want to go, and would like to, you know, just just walk and and be and and see all there is to see there. But at the same time, you think about uh, the fact that. There is this other place in the Middle East where uh where all of these three major world religions were born where where Abraham who from whom all of this originated uh that's the place that he walked that's the place that he lived and I think that that is uh that's incredibly significant well,
3: I'm just gonna use it as a good teaching opportunity with my kids bring up some of the old you know classic jams like Father Abraham from Sunday school Lindsay are you' gonna to do a rendition of that
0: mm-hmm Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. And so are you if you've trusted in Jesus. That's how we sing it with with Marian. (laughs) (laughs) You don't want to give her any false assurance. Well, anyways,
3: I just, you know, the the other part of it on a more serious note, I just think Middle Eastern history is really interesting and and especially as it ties into the church. And so uh, this is, like I said, I brought this up because I think it's pretty cool. On the international front, also, CNN reports that hundreds of schoolgirls who were kidnapped at gunpoint from their boarding school in Nigeria have been released, according to authorities. The girls were abducted last Friday by armed men who raided their state run school in the northwest state of Zamfara, police said. Kidnapping for ransom is rife in parts of Nigeria and has become a major security challenge there. Thankfully, no ransom had to be paid for these girls and mainly. Uh, All of them were returned uh, safely with just basically sore feet. Uh, And so that's certainly a blessing that that happened. And, um, you know, we need to be paying attention uh, to what is going on across the globe. Closer to home, Axios reports that Congress canceled its scheduled workday on Thursday because of threats from domestic extremists. A joint report from the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI uh, it says extremists have discussed plans to take control of the Capitol and, quote, remove Democratic lawmakers on or about March 4th. The House canceled its plans for Thursday's votes as word of the possible threats spread. Now, you may be asking yourself, why March 4th? What's the significance? Well, we just go to our friends across the ocean at the BBC because they had a pretty interesting report that captured all of this. It's been about six weeks since the inauguration of President Joe Biden, and it would seem that Donald Trump's best chance of regaining the presidency would be in the 2024 election. But not if you're a follower, again from the report, of the baseless QAnon conspiracy theory, which believes he will come back sooner and somehow be returned to power on March 4th. Basically, the theory centers on some extreme uh, libertarian kind of political philosophy that states that everything that occurred after 1871 uh, basically is rendered meaningless, right? Uh, Because they think that the U.S. ceased being a nation and instead became a corporation. Pretty interesting. So anyways, why March 4th, though? Because that was the original date. When presidents took the oath of office and were inaugurated, so that's why they think this. We're we're actually recording this on March 4th, and I can I can tell you breaking news: uh, President Joe Biden is still president. Uh, so, uh, but I put this in there so that way uh, we all, if if we encounter some of this, we can we can obviously fact check it in real time. All right. Did so you let's know that? Say, oh, go ahead.
0: Wait. Did you know that March 4th is the only day of the year that's a command?
3: Don't do the Star Wars.
0: Oh wow! It's not. It's March fourth. Oh, that's May the
3: fourth. Oh, that's right. May the fourth. No, May the fourth
0: be with you. This is an epic dad joke that Brett would usually say. But listen, now you'll always think about it.
3: I I feel like this this guy originally told you by Dan (laughs) Darling. Did Dan darling uh, originally tell you this because this is a no very, way. I, very much no, feels mm-hmm. like it's in Dan's repertoire.
0: No, it felt like it originated in my head, but I could have heard it somewhere else, but I I think I think it it was original to me just as far as I know. Because yeah. these are the kinds of things I think about on a daily basis.
3: There it is. There it is. All right. All right, so we're we're going to end with the Cheeto Bandit. That's right. This comes to us from a nationally known radio show, the Bobby Bone Show. A recent burglary investigation in Oklahoma proved it ain't easy being cheesy. That's for you, Lindsay. The Tulsa Police Department.
0: Are y'all not rolling your eyes at Brent over that? Oh, oh, you quoted it. Okay. No, it's
3: from the report, but
0: Okay, okay, okay. Got it.
3: Just just stepping all over my news reporting here. The Tulsa Police Department announced they were able to successfully locate a burglary suspect through Cheetos Residue in a post shared on their official Facebook account. Officers located a bag of Cheetos and a bottle of water on the floor near the open window, which they believed was dropped by the suspect. Police said the victim identified this person, Sharon Carr, as the suspect, after seeing her, and Carr was further linked to the crime when officers noticed Cheeto residue on her teeth. So there you have it, folks. That's what led to this caper being solved. This is a real Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew segment for you. What do you think about that, Lindsay? Was it Cheeto residue?
0: Well, I love Cheetos, but I'm just thinking how gross it is to have Cheeto residue on her teeth. Did nobody tell her she had a little bit of cheese left on those teeth?
2: I'm
3: just saying, if you don't brush, crime doesn't pay. Yeah,
0: <laughs> That's right. <laughs> this oh, has man. been a very
3: hygiene-specific news rundown. So, folks, what do we know? Wear your masks, wash your hands, and brush your teeth. Exactly. <laughs> Lindsay, Josh, that's your look at this Week in culture.
1: So now we're about to talk to our friend and colleague, Jeff Pickering. Jeff works with our team in D.C. and is kind of the quarterback for all of their outgoing communications and uh, is just in the know on everything you need to know about what's going on in D.C. So, Jeff, we're really excited to talk to you today uh, and welcome back to the podcast. As we're getting started, look, just tell us, uh, obviously, the year in D.C. got off to a really rough start with the assault on the Capitol on January 6th. But, you know, we're moving into a new month now. How have things been uh, in D.C.?
2: Well, Josh, it's good to be back. Lindsey, Brent, good to be back with y'all here as well at the ERLC podcast. And, you know, for those of us in D.C., January 6th feels a lot more recent history than I think it does for everybody else in the country. We're recording today. Uh, The date is March 4th, um, and we're at a heightened state of security around the Capitol because of the QAnon conspiracy theory. Um, I don't really think there's like, you know, any reason to be worried in DC, but you know, the FBI and, uh, the police around the Capitol and the national guard do have that stepped up presence because there is online chatter. So it, it is still a very weird time. Just a few blocks from the office, the fence line and barbed wire and armed national guard start. And they've had that perimeter around the Capitol building, uh, ever since, ever since January 6th. And it's, uh, there is no timetable for when all of that uh, gets gets drawn down. So it's concerning and it's frustrating. And, you know, to answer that question, how are things in D.C., there's that. Um, obviously, we're all still in a sort of hybrid remote working Capitol Hill. Hearings will happen where some members are in the hearing room, some members are on Zoom in their office or back in their home district. So it's, you know, there's still the COVID thing going on as well. Uh, So, noting that and then sort of setting that aside to say, okay, what about our actual policy and and agenda that we're working on in advocacy? It's a really busy time, uh, and it always is at the start of a new Congress, but then especially every four years at the start of a new presidential administration – uh, and the start of a congress so right now there's a lot of work as we are responding to bills that members are introducing um, just right now even before we started recording we were talking about some of our messaging around a bill called the adoptee citizenship act bill which is a bill we've uh we've advocated for in previous Congress or advocating for again. So there's a lot of bills being introduced. There are actions being taken by President Biden and his administration that we are engaged with and responding to. Um, So it's always a very busy season uh, here at the start of a new administration and a new Congress, Uh, on top of kind of that low drumbeat of uncertainty and the reminders of a lot of the deep sickness that's in American political life right now.
0: So Jeff, you mentioned public policy agenda. And the ERLC has just put out the 2021 public policy agenda, which note for listeners, uh, prior to 2021, it's been called the legislative agenda, if you're looking on our site for that. But can you tell us a little bit about why we do this? And, you know, you mentioned this Adoptee Citizenship Act. Are there any other highlights that are worth mentioning?
2: Yeah. So, you know, the the reason for the name change is because so much of our advocacy isn't isn't just before Congress dealing with legislation. Uh, And that is, you know, that's been a long time coming as more and more policymaking happens from the White House and throughout the executive branch to all the different departments, like the Department of Health and Human Services, uh, the Department of Homeland Security, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And as that policymaking process has really left the regular order on Capitol Hill and gone into the administration and before the federal judiciary, with a lot of lawmaking happening throughout our federal court system and ultimately up at the Supreme Court, for an advocacy group like the ERLC we it turns out that a lot of our advocacy has to happen in before all three branches of government. And so while uh, you know you would think about the policymaking process being one that representatives and senators uh, would primarily be involved with, uh, we find ourselves advocating pretty regularly before all all three branches on on these issues. So, you know, since I mentioned it, the, you know the adoptee citizenship act is a is a good example of of the kind of work that we do in adoption policy there is essentially a loophole in the way in which us citizenship was given to adoptees uh, so boys and girls who are being adopted into an American family and I know there are many listeners and, and many friends of the RLC uh, who have who have adopted uh, children internationally and so um, before a prior bill about 20 or so years ago uh, it was a very complicated process how those children would then also be given American citizenship once they were a son and and or a daughter of an American uh, American family. Uh, and uh, anyway, when that was all pieced together previously, there were some that were left out because of a date in the bill. This sounds very wonky, but it's a real problem for a lot of adoptees. And so this bill seeks to uh, seeks to tie up that loose end uh, and close that loophole for uh, men and women who are adoptees of American citizen family. So um, on, on the uh, sanctity of human life, Front, um, we have have been working tirelessly long before. This has been a long time coming. Which is questions around pro life budget writers. Uh, the most the most well known one, the one that gets the most headlines, is called the Hyde Amendment. So this this these are a whole suite of riders, and we've got multiple articles on our on our site where you can learn more about this. That prevents taxpayer dollars from being spent on on and around uh, the abortion industry. These are really important. They come with decades of bipartisan consensus and agreement, and we're going to continue to advocate for those, even though they, you know, they they've long been a line of consensus in the in the abortion debates ever since Roe v. Wade. Um, but it's something that the abortion lobby has been aggressively pushing against to try to open up taxpayer funding, federal taxpayer funding. Uh, for abortion, we are standing athwart that yelling stop, along with uh, along with many others in the pro life community, and even those who are more uh, who wouldn't be as staunchly pro life, but understand that this is an area where millions of Americans have grave disagreements uh, over abortion, and we just should not be using taxpayer dollars for something that would bind the consciences of millions of Americans who. Think that abortion is a grave moral wrong. So, you know that's a that's a really important issue right now uh, in D.C. with a Democratic president and uh, and Democratic leadership on Capitol Hill. When it comes to religious liberty issues, we're continuing to stand where we've always stood, making the case for the freedom of conscience and uh, America's first freedom as a bedrock foundational principle for our society and the uh, proper ordering of government. And so most recently, that has looked like uh, speaking to the questions before uh, before Congress. Uh, the House just voted on a bill Called the Equality Act, which, while uh, you know, it's something Josh I know you've you've talked about and written about uh, quite a bit. It's a it's a bill with a with a clever name, but we think it's a misleading name because in the effort to seek equality for uh, the LGBT community uh, in this country, what the Equality Act really does is just totally gut religious freedom uh, and and dramatically changes the really the foundations of of our ability to live at to live at peace with one another, and and undermines the foundations of civic tolerance, where America has always been a place where people of a wide variety of viewpoints uh, can live as neighbors side by side. Uh, religious liberty is critical to that, and this bill would just absolutely blow up that foundation of religious freedom and 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 punish faith based charities uh, for their foundational religious beliefs. Jeff, you talked about this briefly in
3: your last answer. Could you just kind of briefly sum up again? We've talked before about uh, the Hyde Amendment and Mexico City policy. Uh, can you just remind our audience what those are and what they, where they stand currently?
2: Yeah. So the Hyde Amendment is the most well-known. Pro-life appropriation rider. So this is an amendment that goes on to the government spending bill uh, that determines, basically, puts guardrails on how those appropriations uh, can and cannot be spent. I think the Hyde Amendment personally is is really worth considering because of its history as as our polarized nation. You know, looks for a way forward. So it's named after a former member of Congress. Um, so in in 1976, just three years after Roe v.ersus Wade, a congressman by the name of Henry Hyde, he was a Democrat from Illinois responded by introducing this budget writer uh, to the Department of Health and Human Services Appropriations bill. So what it would do is prevent Medicaid from covering the cost Medicaid expenditures from covering the cost of abortion. So that's you know, there there are a lot of writers, they're all very important. Um, Hyde is uh, historically noteworthy. Uh, it's also, I mean, when you think about this man's legacy, he actually ran for Congress in the aftermath of Roe v. Wade because of his pro-life convictions, and one of the things he ran on was preventing Medicaid from covering the cost of abortion. And it's it's neat that he was successful to do that, and here we are nearly uh, nearly half a century later uh, where his his amendment, the Hyde Amendment, has passed every single Congress and been signed into law by every single president since – Um, That's noteworthy. We think it ought to continue. I will tell you that as optimistic as one can be right now, I am optimistic that the Hyde Amendment will, uh, will continue to be a part of government appropriations. Um, one of the reasons I I feel optimistic like that is because of an effort in the uh, United States Senate that got enough uh, Republican members – I believe the number was 48 – to sign on to an agreement to say they would not vote for any appropriations legislation that did not have Hyde and other pro-life amendment riders. So um, that would prevent the Senate from getting to 60 votes and, and thus uh, – it's, it's an important sign for the Hyde Amendment's future. The Mexico City policy, however, um, has been rescinded. And what the Mexico City policy does is uh, prevent—when it's in place, uh, it prevents American foreign aid dollars from being spent uh, on, on abortion. And the reason it's called the Mexico City policy is because the policy was put in place uh, by President Reagan— while uh, at a meeting of the UN given in, you guessed it, Mexico City. Uh, so it is named uh, for the location of the speech where Reagan first put this policy into place. Uh, and it's, uh, it's unfortunately been a political football ever since. Uh, Reagan puts it into place. Uh, President Bush 41 continues it. President Clinton rescinds it. Bush 43 brings it back. Obama rescinds it. Trump brings it back. Now Biden has rescinded it again. Uh, And thus uh, is the peril of pursuing policy only through executive action.
0: So, Jeff, we mentioned uh, Becerra's nomination earlier in the podcast. Can you just give us a summary of why the ERLC is opposed to this nomination and then what the timeline is regarding it?
2: So, yes. Uh. This isn't something that we do often or take lightly, but we here at the RLC do oppose the nomination of Javier Becerra by President Biden for uh, the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Uh, His background, he was a congressman for six terms. Uh, He's the current attorney general of the state of California. And Mr. Becerra's record is troubling and we think uh, disqualifying for this role uh, because his public service record is one defined by abortion extremism and conscience discrimination. So it's really difficult for us to see how Becerra could possibly be in a position to mobilize the country and unify the country to finish the fight together against the COVID-19 pandemic, something that would be crucial uh, to his role at HHS when he's built his career fighting against fellow Americans because of disagreements over abortion and conscience rights. Um, so a couple of the of the highlights of of this public service career that we think has been defined by extremism and and discrimination on these issues— He targeted pregnancy resource centers in California. Uh, Thankfully, he lost before the Supreme Court in the case Nifla v. Becerra. What they were trying to do in California is use the power of the state to force pro-life groups and pregnancy resource centers to publicize for the abortion industry, something that is just, quite frankly, ridiculous. Um, It was a fight that I'm glad they lost. I think it's obvious that they should have lost um, to advertise for an industry that's diametrically opposed to everything that you believe as a pro-life pregnancy resource center. He has also sued He's sued the Catholic charity, Little Sisters of the Poor. I mean, just think about that, suing nuns. Uh, he sued nuns challenging their religious liberty and conscience rights, uh, also lost at the Supreme Court. Uh, and while he was in Congress, he voted against multiple common sense bills that would Curtail the abortion industry's barbaric practices. So these include voting against the partial birth abortion ban, uh, voting against the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. Um, So to sum up why we at the RLC are opposed to uh, Mr. Becerra's nomination. Uh, for for HHS and would encourage the Senate to vote him down and and deny him uh, the opportunity to serve at HHS is uh, is a quote uh, by by our boss Dr Moore uh, he said this back in December when President Biden first nominated uh, Mr Becerra for the position he said quote the new HHS secretary a position that is crucially important but never more so during a global pandemic should have the coronavirus as enemy number one not Americans with differing religious convictions. And I think that's exactly right.
3: All right, Jeff, for our last question, you actually already touched on the Equality Act earlier and uh, you know why we are opposed to it. Obviously, we never want to support discrimination or see anyone mistreated, and you helpfully laid out why we are opposed to this on ethical grounds and uh, on, on policy grounds. Uh, matters. So uh, would you just give our audience a sense of like, where does it stand legislatively and procedurally right now?
2: Yeah. So right now it, the Equality Act passed the house. Um, I do think it's worth noting that it passed the house with fewer uh, votes in favor of it than when it was first introduced. Uh, in the previous Congress. Uh, so make of that what you will. But it has passed the House. It is before the Senate. Um, but we do not yet have a, a timeline um, or much of a notice from the Majority Leader uh, Schumer, Chuck Schumer of New York, on a timing of the vote uh, in the Senate. So it is It is where so many bills often uh, go and find their final resting place in between uh, the House and the Senate. We do expect a vote in the Senate at some point in this Congress. We just don't know when that will be quite yet. Uh, the one other thing I want to say on the Equality Act is that it has a ton of of abortion policy in it. And it would actually, because it would undermine Hyde and some of these other things that we've already talked about on this episode, um, and because of some of the ways it changes definitions around gender and around pregnancy, uh, it would bring forward federal paid abortion and uh, would actually be, and we get into this in some of our explainers uh, on uh, at erlc.com and on a recent episode of uh, Capital Conversations podcast that I host, um, we we get into all the abortion policies policy that is hidden away in the Equality Act. So it it would represent a massive boon to the abortion industry if it were to pass. And so that's another another reason that ERLC is opposed to it.
1: Jeff man, that is so helpful. And honestly, just hearing all of that, because we just covered so much ground uh, in such a short amount of time that like our listeners are going to like, I'm sure one of the things they're going to take away is the fact that we're grateful to have people like you and our colleagues in DC who are uh, contending for like in on these issues, because it is so important. And it's it's complex at a level that the average person does not have time to dig into all of these things, or even know how to stay apprised of them. And so man, we just want to say thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks
2: for welcoming me here on the ERLC's flagship podcast to talk about some of these issues.
1: So now it's time for the lunchroom where every week we tell you about the things we've been talking about with one another. Lindsay, you're up first this week. So tell us what's on your mind.
0: So this, uh, lunchroom segment of mine is brought to you by our friend and coworker, Marie Delph. She shares things with me on Instagram. Sometimes this is a parody that Jimmy Fallon and John legend did about COVID and, uh, it's a Beauty and the Beast parody. So this is the day of me singing on this podcast. So it goes a little something like this. March the 4th, it's another morning. Every day like the one before, March the 4th. It's been a long year. Um, Something like waking up to say, I'm bored indoors. I'm bored, I'm bored indoors. And then they go on to continue to sing that song. It is hilarious. So I would highly recommend checking it out. I think you'll resonate with a lot of it.
1: I think we should explore the possibility of opening, you know, starting a new podcast that just features Lindsay singing things she saw on the internet.
0: Hey, that sounds awesome. Let's do it. Listenership will go way down.
1: Well, that's why I threw out the new podcast idea. But Brent, you're up next. Tell us what's up. Well, it's hard to follow
3: uh, when you do Jimmy Fallon and John Legend, but... Say this week, uh, one of the things I did is uh, signed up for a subscription for our local newspaper uh, here in Nashville. It's the Nashville Tennessean, and you know, growing up, always had a subscription to the local newspaper, and uh, I, I thoroughly enjoy a, a physical newspaper copy. So I would say that's what I'm bringing uh, to the lunchroom this week. Is is just encouraging our uh, audience uh, try and stay up to date with what's going on in your local community. One of the problems that we have in culture right now is we're constantly paying attention more to what's going on in Washington, D.C. or New York or some other faraway place as opposed to what's happening right in our own backyard. So definitely a local subscription is is what I would encourage you to to do this week.
1: Yeah, man, that's, that's so good. And honestly, I'm going to stick with this theme. So I think about all the time as a father, uh, the fact that I don't want my kids to grow up or I think about what they are going to remember from their childhood when they, you know, when they get older. And so, uh, right now we are coming into some spring weather. It's weird. I expect it's going to get cold again before it starts to stay warm, but we've had some really beautiful days here in Nashville over the last, uh, few weeks and, or ever since the snow cleared out. And so, I've just been trying to enjoy more time with my children. And because my son is that age where he has friends in the neighborhood and he and his little friends go off and just kind of run around playing each other's backyards and do stuff uh, that leaves me and my, you know, three-year-old daughter to just hang out and do stuff. And so on some of these nice days, man, I've just been putting her in the red wagon and dragging her. I say dragging, that sounds bad, but you know, pulling her behind me in the red wagon uh, through our neighborhood and just enjoying this time to talk to her and to, you know, greet some of our neighbors, see a bunch of dogs and like, you know, just spend time with my three-year-old and it has been really, really really wonderful. So this is nothing more for me for the lunchroom today. It's just to encourage people, look. Blow something off, spend some time with your kids, you won't regret it. It'll be great. So Make sure you do that. This ending
3: has the all the kind of localism, communitarian feels to it. I, mean, I love it. This would,
1: this, would make, this would make Senator Ben Sass really happy. It really, really would. And so, uh, look, if you're not familiar with Ben Sass, he's got a great book called Them. He's got another great book, which the title is escaping me right now. You could check that out, or you could just go on a walk with your kids. Either way.
3: Vanishing American Adult.
1: That's what it is. Vanishing or the Vanishing
3: American. Adult. The Vanishing Adult. Is it American?
1: I think it's American. Okay, maybe it's American. Any Americans case. should read it anyway. Americans Should Read, Ben Sasse, and we got to end this podcast. So look, thanks so much for listening. That's going to do it for the show today. It has been just an absolute joy to spend time with these colleagues and to spend time, you know, talking about this stuff with you guys today. So if you like the show, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your podcast app and leaving us a rating or review. But for Brent and Lindsay and myself and Jeff Pickering out there in DC, we want to say thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back next week with more content.